Let's open our Bibles, Matthew 18. We're going to begin in verse uh, 7, and we're going to tackle three paragraphs together. We'll read them one at a time as we go. But our first point is that is the need for a shepherd. The need for a shepherd. So read with me, if you would, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. God's word. And stern words to start with. Bracing and difficult words. It speaks to the reality of temptation in this fallen world. He says in here that temptation must come. And what, what he, he, he's not meaning it's necessary. And he, what he's saying is that we live in a fallen world. We're all tempted all the time. None of us goes a week or a day or an hour without facing some kind of temptation. And this points us as sheep to our need for a shepherd. There are many cracks in the ground, we'll say, that we can fall into and get stuck in. So Jesus begins by warning us, not first of how should we respond to temptation, but first he warns us against being a temptation, being the cause of a temptation to others. Verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now a woe, when he says woe, this is a pronouncement of doom, a pronouncement of judgment. He, he is he is giving the most stern warning possible. Stop. Don't go this way. This is the path of destruction. Now, when people sin, when we sin, we are, we are culpable for our own sin because we sin when we follow our own wicked, sinful desires into sin. Right? In other words, you can't make someone else sin. They're culpable for their own sin. But you can share in their guilt by laying temptations in front of them. And the Lord says, woe to that person. And so this could be perhaps using some harsh words with someone that tempts them to a sinful anger and a response to you. It could be dressing or acting in an immodest way that tempts others to sin. It could be flaunting a freedom that you have in Christ, maybe drinking alcohol around someone else who's weak in that area and who would fall because of your example. So friends, what we're called to first here is not tempting each other, helping each other in this battle against sin, in this world where we need a shepherd, where there's lots of cracks in the ground that we're not pushing each other in. 
helping each other get stuck. But then the next thing he talks about is our response when we're tempted, and that was verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And then he says the same thing again, but with the eye. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Throughout church history, people have taken this literally and maimed themselves in their fight against sin. This is not to be taken literally, and we know that because the way that Jesus sets it up, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, I've got news for you. Your right hand will never cause you to sin. Your heart will cause you to sin. It's the sinful desires and the inclinations of you, of me. It's it's deeper than our hands or feet or eyes or ears. And it cannot be solved by addressing those externalities. It's got to be solved by, by something deeper than that. So, so it's not to be taken literally, but oh, it's to be taken seriously when our Lord speaks in such a way. He's using very bracing words. He's speaking to those who would follow after him. Someone who's considering discipleship. They're considering following after the Lord. And in both verses, he puts hell itself on the line. Both verses. The first, he says, it's better to enter life lame than to be thrown into the eternal fire. The second, better to have one eye than to be thrown into the hell of fire. He is motivating us with a very clear logic. It is better to suffer in your fight against sin than to suffer God's wrath against sin. We need to be about killing sin. But wait, doesn't Jesus know the gospel? Doesn't he know and and understand that we're saved by grace alone? Why all this talk of hell. And we can be assured that Jesus knows the gospel. Anyone who is not fighting their sin is on the path to hell. Anyone who is loving their sin more than they are loving God is not on the path towards God. Anyone who's refusing to put their sin to death is on the pathway to death. And this does not mean that you have to be perfect to be saved. Glory to God, we don't have to be perfect to be saved. Praise Him for that. It's rather that if you are saved and if you are born again, if the Spirit of God lives within you, then you will be learning to hate sin. And you will be learning to fight against sin. And you will be increasingly at war with sin. Sin. Jesus is addressing a misunderstanding of the gospel, a cheap grace interpretation of the gospel, a salvation without repentance, false gospel that says you can follow Jesus and love your sin too. Here is how you can know that you are at peace with God. 
you are at war with sin. And here's how you can know you are at war with God. You are at peace with your sin. This is a call to arms. It is a call to do battle. It's a call to recognize we are sheep in a world full of cracks and dangers. And we are called to be killing sin. A wonderful Puritan theologian, John Owen, said it this way. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, you know, when, when I read this and perhaps when you read this, if, if you've got a soft conscience towards the Lord and you read this, it can be challenging to read. And we should fear God, by the way. It's okay to read God's word and to tremble before it and say, Lord, have mercy upon me. Um, but there's also a reality that our enemy knows the scriptures. And he's not at all above taking those scriptures and twisting them to shake your faith in Christ and shake your faith in the gospel. Friend, this, this passage is not intended to shake your faith in God. It's intended to deepen your faith in God and to reveal to you how much you need the grace of God. Does not Jesus picture here a desperate struggle? I mean, what kind of fight is this? We're talking about cutting off hands and limbs and eyes in this fight. This is an all-out war against sin. He's not, he's not saying, hey, if you're a Christian, it's going to be easy. Don't worry about it. As soon as you're saved, temptation just goes away. Like, boom, we're just there. You're just instantly walking in righteousness all the time. That is not the picture. This is a battlefield with bombs going off all around, and he's calling us to keep fighting in that war. So listen, if you find yourself in the middle of a desperate struggle against sin, you're in the right place. That's what it looks like to be trusting God. That's what it looks like to be a sheep in this fallen world because temptation still comes. We live in a world full of it and we're called to fight against it. And this is why we so deeply need a shepherd. All right, so number one, the need for a shepherd. Number two, the heart of the shepherd. For this, we're going to read the next paragraph together, beginning in verse 10. So Matthew 18, verse 10, the heart of the shepherd. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You've probably heard this parable before if you've been around. 
church. It's in our Bibles more than once. It's here in Matthew, and it's over in Luke also. And what's interesting is that Matthew and Luke use it differently. So if you've, if you've ever read this, studied it in Luke, and, uh, the, the parable of the lost sheep talks about God going after the unsaved. God going after the one who's not in his flock and bringing them into his flock. And praise God that that's true. Praise God that he does that. Praise him that he seeks and saves the lost. That's why we know him. But that's not the way it's used in Matthew. Here, this is not about God going after those who are not saved. This parable is about a Christian who is part of the flock, who falls into a hole, who wanders away, who leaves the flock and gets lost in their sin. And it speaks to the heart of God to go after that one. Friend, this is good news. Jesus is not a one-time shepherd that came to seek and save the lost and bring you into the flock and then say, okay, good, you stay here, and goes and gets more. He does go and get more, praise God for that. But he keeps his eye on the flock, and when one goes astray, he goes after that one. Praise him for that. So it starts in verse 10, in one of the more interesting verses in the New Testament. It says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So in the context here, if you remember from last week, if you were here, little ones at this point is referring to those who humbly put their faith in Christ. So th these, are, these are words for believers. Don't despise believers. Which believers? Those who are fighting against sin. Those who struggle with sin. Don't. Church, don't despise each other in your battle against sin. You know how not to do that? Just don't forget that you're fighting against sin. Makes it much easier to interact with someone else in their fight against sin as well. But it says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I do not know fully what this means. They're angels. The angels of believers see the face of God in heaven. There's many different interpretations. Some would say there's, that we have guardian angels and they point to this verse. I don't know that that's what this means. Maybe. Seems like we'll ask the Lord one day. But here's what I can tell you. There is angelic representation of the believers before the face of God all the time. 24-7, 365, year after year, decade after decade, the, the sheep might be lost and have forgotten God. God has not forgotten that sheep because they are still represented before His face, right there in the immediate presence of the throne of God. He has not forgotten. And then Jesus tells us the parable that if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, he leaves it, leaves those 99 and goes after that one. He is revealing to us right here the heart of his father, the heart of God himself, 
that when, when he sees one of his own kids falling into the crack again, going astray again, he responds by going after that sheep again. This is wonderful, wonderful news. What's the heart of the shepherd? You know, when I saw this, this video, and I, I saw that sheep jump in, you know how there's comments under videos? Most of the comments said things like, stupid sheep, <laughs> right? Or, man, I would hate being a shepherd. Like, really? <laughs> wow. Um, it would be easy to be exasperated, wouldn't it? If that was your job. You know, every time you fix something, it, it got hurt right again. What we do not see here is an exasperated shepherd. We see a shepherd who is eager and ready and expecting to go after lost sheep. That is his inclination. He's not surprised. He's not annoyed. He's not exasperated. So let me ask you, not what you believe on your Bible test, but what you're thinking in the week, in the back of your mind, how does God think of you after you sin? How does He think of you? How is He looking at you? I can tell you how I struggle in this area because I, I tend to think that God thinks of me like I would think of me. And I'd be pretty exasperated with me. I'd be pretty much over me and falling into that crack again or wandering off over here again. And friends, this is a call to us to believe the gospel afresh and to believe the goodness of God afresh and to replace our small thoughts of God with biblical thoughts of God that he is a good shepherd who comes after his sheep over and over and over again. And then he rejoices over it. when he, He's not annoyed. It's not like, okay, now time out for you. He's rejoicing over that sheep when he brings us back to him again. So there's two things for us to do with this. And, and the first is to believe it. You do know this is where the battle lines are right? The battle lines in our mind are along the line of belief. What do you believe on that day when you sin? Now, this is not a call to sin. We just talked about the war against sin, right? We're called to that war against sin. And in that war, there will be times when you fail. What then? What does it look like then? What are you thinking of God then? Because your thoughts of God right then are going to inform what you do right then. And if you see God as angry and distant and disappointed and exasperated, it will slow your repentance, not speed it up. It will cause you to hang back and away from God rather than to go running back to the good shepherd who's looking for you. Your thoughts of God will absolutely inform your response to God. 
So friend, this is a call for us to recognize that he doesn't think about us like we would think about us. Praise God for that. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. They are simply higher than ours. If you want a good passage to meditate on and even to memorize, I would point you to Isaiah 55. I'm going to read a few verses from there where Isaiah uses this very idea that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They are higher than us. He uses that as motivation to seek the Lord, as motivation to come back to the Lord, to repent of our sin. It's hard to turn back to God when you're picturing Him having His back towards you. But if you can believe the gospel and believe the character of God, it will draw you back to Him. This is what Isaiah 55 says, beginning in verse 6. It says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then God starts talking first person. For my thoughts, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, believe the gospel on your bad days that you may turn back to the Lord who is a good shepherd coming after you. Don't believe that he thinks of you as you think of you. For his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And on those days when we most need him, how wonderful it is to believe true things about him and not the lies that the enemy would seek to put in to our mind. So we're called first to believe this, that this is the heart of the shepherd. And then second, we're called to treat each other according to the heart of the shepherd. To treat each other in each other's sin the way the shepherd would have us treat them. And that's actually what the next section, the final paragraph, is about, as we talk about number three, the community of the shepherd. So we've said the need for a shepherd, the heart of the shepherd, and now the community of the shepherd. Let's read together Matthew 18, verse 15, our final paragraph. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take it to one or two others, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. 
if your brother sins. We now go from considering the shepherd's disposition towards us, towards our disposition to our brothers and sisters. And the situation is we see a brother or a sister in sin. And the question is, what are we to do in that situation? First, let us note that it is in sin that we see our brother or sister. Not just when you see your brother or sister doing something you don't like. When you are torqued with your brother or annoyed with your sister. This is not what we're talking about. Okay, We're talking about a clear case where your brother or your sister has fallen into a crack in the ground. They are now stuck in sin. And you see that. What are you to do? I'll tell you what our society would tell you to do. Just ignore it, of course. Actually, what our society would do would be say, praise them for it. That's, that's how we're going. We praise those who are running into sin, as though sin were a good thing, something to celebrate. But I think as believers, what we're often tempted to do is to ignore it, is to kind of think, it's not really my job. You know, that's between them and God. It's not really up to me to do anything about this. That is not the instruction of the Lord. Instead, he calls us to go to that erring brother or to that erring sister. Why? Why in the world? Isn't this a little awkward? Have you done this? It's a little awkward to go to a brother or a sister and to confront them and talk to them about the sin that they are in. It can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable. It can be difficult. It might be those things. But this is how God rescues his sheep. I read these two paragraphs separately, the parable of the lost sheep and then these instructions. Right? They're two different paragraphs. Okay, good. They are one idea. There's a reason these are put together in the Scripture. God goes after His sheep. You be His hands and feet. You go to your brother and seek to pull him up out of the ground. You go to your sister, grab her, and try to bring her to safety. Why are we doing this? Because it is the heart of God to rescue His sheep. And he's commissioned his church to do that work. We're to be a community of the shepherd. Exercising the heart of the shepherd towards each other. And so, if your brother's in sin, go to your brother and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now notice, if your brother's in sin, this is what it says, right? If your brother's in sin, Go tell other people. No. That's not what it says, is it? If your brother's in sin, bring it up at care group and ask everyone to pray for your brother. No, that's not what it says, is it? Uh, if your brother's in sin, take it to your prayer group so that you can get wisdom about what to do. It says if your brother's in sin, go to your brother. And talk to him. 
between you and him alone. There is a concern here to keep the circle as small as possible. This is what love does, right? Love, love moves towards the other person for their good. It's not trying to embarrass the other person. It's not publishing this on Facebook, you know? This is going to that person for their good. What's easier for you? If someone's going to bring something to you where you know you've fallen, you know you've, you've sinned, is it easier if that's between you and them in private or if they've first gone and told six people about it? Right? This is meant to make it as easy as possible for the errant person to turn back around. So there's a principle in here that we're keeping the circle as small as we can. So you, so you go to your brother and you say, Brother, I've seen this. I'm concerned about this. Let's, but let's say your brother, your sister ignores you and, and, they, and they won't turn around. And it, you just can't get them up out of that crack. They like it down there. They like being stuck down in that crack in the ground. You can't get them out. What do you do? That's the next verse. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now you go and get one or two others. Think carefully about who these people would be. All right? I would encourage you, go to folks that you know in the body who are mature, who can go with you and talk with this person together. There's multiple reasons why it's two or three people here. First of all, as you go to that person, it becomes harder to ignore when three people come to you and say, brother, I'm concerned for you. You're, you're on a road towards destruction. Turn around. Stop walking this direction. It's meant to turn the volume knob up so that sheep who are hard of hearing or who are refusing to hear can hear. The other thing it's meant to do is to make sure that we're back to like point one, that we're actually talking about sin. In other words, you know, um, you go to your brother and you say, brother, I'm really concerned that you wore sandals to church. You know that that's wrong and you shouldn't do that. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And they won't listen to you. So then you go and get two or three, or one or two others to go with you. And they're like, yeah, that's not a thing. Don't, no, no, that's not a thing. Don't do that. They're allowed to wear sandals to church. Okay, so there's, there's two sides to this, right? When you go and get one or two mature believers... And they say, yeah, wow, this is concerning. Let's go together and talk to this person. You're bringing the community together to consider this together and saying, yep, this is an issue of concern for this person. So it, it, it makes sure that we're on the right page, that we're actually helping someone in actual sin, not just wearing sandals to church sin, and it turning the volume up for them. But what if... Three people pulling on that sheep can't get it out. It really likes to be down in that hole in the ground. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This point, we're expanding that circle yet again and bringing more people in on this situation. Why? Why are we doing this? So that collectively the church can appeal to this person to repent. This is an outworking of the parable of the lost sheep. This is God the Father going after 
this sheep through his people. Saying, turn around, come back, turn back to me. This is the means by which God is doing that. And so together as a church, and this, by the way, this is the stage that you involve a pastor because it's going to be an important conversation that we have as a church. We're going to walk through together how to appeal to this errant brother or sister. But what if they still don't turn? That's the next part of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If you still won't listen, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector, which is to say, treat him as an unbeliever. What's, what does that mean, to treat somebody as an unbeliever? As a church, what that would mean is to say, you can't be a member of Mercy Hill. Membership is for sinners who are repenting. Believers who say, yes, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm repenting of my sins. So they can't be a member of the church and they can't receive communion, which is the meal for believers when they're expressing physically that I depend on this body and this blood for all that I have. So, those things become off limits to this person, but it does not mean they get ostracized. It does not mean that we, we, we push them away. How do you treat an unbeliever? How should we treat an unbeliever? I don't know, like calling them to Jesus? Building relationship with them? Calling them to repentance? Giving them hope in the gospel? Explaining the gospel to them? Seeking to, to build a connection with them so that we can bring the good news of the gospel across that connection to them? That's how we're to treat the one who is errant and fallen away. Inviting them to Jesus. Inviting them to church. Inviting them to the picnic. Inviting them to be a part and calling them back to Christ even still. Do you see from the first step to the last step, that Jesus is saying here, it is all about calling sheep back to the Lord. And do you read this and kind of go, man, this seems hard. Like this would never work. Like you ever tried something? Like this is never going to work. I, I get that. Because you know how stuck we can be in sin, don't you? And you know how just mere human words probably aren't going to turn people around. But don't forget the previous parable. Because what's happening here, as the church does these simple steps of pursuing each other, God the Father's on the move. The great shepherd is after his sheep. It's not about us. We do our little part, and we keep looking to him. You're the shepherd. We're like mini shepherds. We're little under-shepherds. Trying to, trying to help out. We're little under-shepherds trusting the shepherd to shepherd his sheep through our little actions, through our little efforts. So this calls us to faith in him as we do this. So friends, we can do this because 
you have a good shepherd and I have a good shepherd because Christ came to seek and save the lost and he's drawn us together and he's not a one-time shepherd who, who brought us together once, but he's one that we can trust over and over and over again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, great in his faithfulness. We should be a happy church, friends. We should be a happy church this, this is where it all happens, right here, that we have a Savior that loves us, that doesn't give up on us. That's what will give you motivation to fight your sin. You know what doesn't give good motivation? Guilt and shame. That, that just sucks the motivation out of life. You know what gives motivation to fighting sin? It's this just gratitude that we've got a shepherd like this that loves even me. Are you kidding? Even me again? Do you have any idea how many times I fell into that crack? And yet he keeps loving me? That, that's where it's at. That's where we find the, the heart to keep fighting our sin and to keep looking to him and then to care for each other, to be a community of the shepherd where we're seeking to care for one another. This job, by the way, this being mini shepherds, under shepherds, this is not the role only of pastors. This is not the role only of care group leaders or of deacons. This is what it means to be part of the flock. This is the role he's giving to all of us. We are called to shepherd one another. That's the that's what it is to be a part of the community of the shepherd is we're called to care for each other. You, do you remember back in Genesis? God came to Cain. He said, Cain, where is your brother? What was Cain's response? Am I my brother's keeper? Just washed his hands of any concern for his brother. And that is the opposite of what the church is called to be. The answer to that question is, Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. This is what it means to be a community of the shepherd. So we talk about Mercy Hill as being a gospel-centered church. A gospel, what does that mean? It means we're, we're focused on the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for what Christ has done for us in the gospel. We're rejoicing in the gospel. It means that in our day-to-day -day life when we fall and when we fail, at that point, we're still insisting that the gospel's real? That he's still a good shepherd even though I'm a sinner? And even when I sin, still my God is for me because of Christ? My sin didn't change Jesus. In fact, Jesus changed everything about me. Being a gospel-centered church means we, we are fighting to believe that on our worst day. And believing that, it means we're fighting our sin. We're, we're about putting it to death by the grace of God, trusting the grace of God to the glory of God, seeking to put our own sin to death. And then being a gospel-centered church means we're extending the grace of the gospel to each other. It's on our lips. It's, 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 in, our, it's in our minds. It's on our lips. It's in our hands. We're going after each other in Jesus' name. Friend, it's okay. He is still a good Savior. 
Cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. Turn back to him. This is what a gospel-centered church looks like. One where we are caring for one another as we rely on the shepherd. So friends, let's be about relying on the shepherd, pointing each other to the shepherd, and exalting the shepherd as we walk this life together. Let's pray. Lord, together right now as a church, we pray for those who are stuck in sin. Those who have forgotten, perhaps for days or months or even years, how to even fight. And we pray that you would reach down and rescue. We pray that you would do this work, this good shepherding work of of keeping us, Lord. Lord, where any of us are aware of sin in someone else, would would you give us the faith, the gentleness, the true love to go to them and in a caring way to point them back to Christ? Help us to speak the gospel to each other. Help us to believe the gospel for ourselves. Help us proclaim this gospel to a lost and dying world that Christ and him alone would be magnified and glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen.